From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for taking a little time out of your Thursday to join us here on EWTN's Open Line. We'd love to have you be part of the program. Give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is one 205 2712985 and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 you can always send us an email openline at ewtn.com or you can text your question to father text the letters ewtn to 55000 Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may get to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. Are you back in Portland? Back in Portland, Jack. Beautiful, rainy Portland. It's it's a lot like Portland here in Birmingham today. (laughs) A little bit of a chill in the air and rain. uh, But that shouldn't dampen our spirits for this great feast of Epiphany today, huh? Right, right. It's true the church has transferred in the modern liturgy, the contemporary liturgy, the feast to Sunday. But it's still Twelfth Night. You know, the actual feast Mm -hmm. is actually today. And we have to remember Christmas hasn't ended yet. Mm-mm. There are people who seem to think that Christmas ends at New Year's. Well, no, no. Hey, listen, I got people on my street that think Christmas ends at 6 o'clock on Christmas Day. <laughs> yes, yes, well, as far <laughs> as the decorations are concerned. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, you know, I mean, remember, Christmas is in Christ being conceived. That happened on March 25th. It's actually Christ becoming known in the world. And so the first place, of course, is December 25th when he comes out of the womb as a baby. But then he is adored, of course, by the shepherds, which are the Jews. But his becoming known has to spread to the whole human race. And the magi are the symbols of that. Now, um, they aren't really Persians. That's a long-standing myth. There's a new book that pretty much convincingly proves that they're, I believe, what they called Nabataeans. And this was an area which was just east of Israel, where many of the people from the diaspora, as far as the uh, destruction of Israel in the, by the Babylonians, took refuge. So these people are very interesting. They're very educated. They're, they have interest in uh, the phenomenon of nature, especially the stars. 
The area of the Nabataeans was made famous in the Indiana Jones Last Crusader film because that's where the uh, end of it took place. And it seems that these people uh, came, became aware of Christ's coming out. And first of all, of course, according to the scriptures, they go to Jerusalem to consult the Hebrew scriptures because salvation comes with the Jews. But they also follow this star. And in this, they show the philosopher's desire to know the truth of the universe through nature. Both of these things lead them to Christ. And of course, they bring them the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold symbolizing his kingship. Frankincense, the fact that he's God. And myrrh, to prepare for his burial. So many aspects of Christ's life are all connected with this revelation to the Gentiles. But you know, the Feast of Epiphany continues on. So the second manifestation, because the word epiphany means manifestation, is Christ's baptism in the Jordan. Now, he doesn't need to be baptized. He doesn't have any sin, obviously. But the tradition is that the baptism wasn't for his benefit. It was for those around him and also for John the Baptist to identify him as the Lamb of God and for the Trinity to give testimony to him. He approved the rite of baptism, John's baptism, but then he gives it a special meaning when the water touches him. It looks forward to his passion and also looks forward to the Christian sacrament of baptism. But even this isn't enough because in addition to Christ's beginning, in a sense, his public ministry through his baptism, he also is manifested in this very beautiful uh, touching event of the wedding feast at Cana where he saves the couple from potential embarrassment at the behest of his mother by changing water into wine. And this miracle, of course, is the first of his miracles. It also demonstrates a connection with the Eucharist because of the wine. And it also shows the marvelous abundance of God because he doesn't just give him crummy wine, sour wine, but he gives them this delicious wine, so much so that the house steward is astonished that they kept it to, for so long. So all three of these things are necessary to discuss Epiphany, and they're all three aspects of the mystery, and so successively we'll celebrate them. And next Sunday is the baptism of the Lord, and then eventually we'll have the wedding feast at Cana, to try to see various aspects of Christ becoming known. The Feast of Epiphany is therefore absolutely uh, essential to understanding what actually occurs in the Nativity. It isn't just that Jesus comes out of his mother's womb, but he becomes known to the world, to all the nations. He becomes known as the person who's going to be the Messiah, the Redeemer, through the uh, undergoing of the ritual of baptism, and he demonstrates how kindly God is, how condescending God is, and how full of charity God is by this miracle in a simple, ordinary context to save this couple from embarrassment, social embarrassment. So we should just constantly marvel 
at all the ways in which Christ now has appeared into the world. And his appearance is essential for us to come to know him. And of course, knowing him is essential for understanding what will eventually happen in the Passion and Resurrection to bring us back to heaven. And we have a role to play in really continuing this epiphany in our day and time, huh? Well, we worship with the Magi, yeah. And then, of course, they have the famous wise men still seek him. Because when we exercise the charity of the Christian life, we manifest to the world also what this Redeemer has wrought to us in being Christ-like so that we can show them basically what the transformation in God means and what human life really should be like. Unfortunately, at the moment, this is a little uh, eclipse to the world. People don't recognize it too much because we live in this secularized age. The Christianity is not a destruction of being human. It's a fulfillment of being human. And uh, the, the world needs to recognize that again. You know, and, and uh, the the secularization of cultures has kind of waxed and waned over history. Right. You know, this isn't the first time we've seen this sort of uh, of a of a secularization of a of a primary culture, and um, that does not absolve us, however, of our responsibilities as Christians. And as a matter of fact, uh, the 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 waxing has only come when the remnant has stood up and been faithful, right? Right. In fact, uh, one of the books I read about the Magi, interestingly, said, you know, they returned by way of Damascus. And uh, that, of course, is where Paul went when he was uh, received, you know, blinded on the road to Damascus. And the idea was that he imbibed a great deal of the aspects of Christ that were taught by the Magi and at that particular time, what people in Damascus look forward to the Messiah as being. And so our share in this is to see a further understanding, not a contrary understanding, but a further understanding of what's brought to us in other witnesses or other prophets of the Messiah. Uh, the, the sad thing is today that unlike paganism, where they hadn't really had the revelation of God yet. We've had it, and we don't reject it in some ways. 833-288-EWTN. That's our phone number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN's Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and those holy reminders that Mother Angelica was always so fond of people keeping in their homes. You can buy Catholic and shop EWTNRC.com today and receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 
I've got some open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls on a Thursday edition of Open Line. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. First up today is Barry. He is in the great state of Pennsylvania listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Barry, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you um, very much for taking my call so soon. Um, your last caller was just speaking of some good books on the Epiphany and the Magi, and I, I want to get the books. I can never get enough Christian books for learning, and uh, I'd like to know if you could tell me what they were. You did well, not mention them. Uh, well, that's because I have, my think, some general knowledge of various other books. Um, I frankly can't remember the name of the book on Epiphany and the uh, the three ma- the three kings, but it's a it's it's a very good book. Unfortunately, you've hit my my uh, wall of senior memory here uh, off offhand. I'd have to look it up. But uh, why don't you just type into Amazon um, the Magi, and I bet you could find it that the, these things easily. But mostly they come from commentaries, which are um, the best commentary on scripture I know, oddly enough, was made in 1955, and it's called The Catholic Commentary on Holy Scripture, edited by Bird Orchard. See, that I do remember. And it's wonderful, uh, It's because it, it has many of the elements that were just beginning the new trends in scripture scholarship, but it also includes what Cardinal Ratzinger said, or Benedict XVI, any good commentary should include, and that's the uh, Fathers of the Church ideas about these things, and of course even Thomas Aquinas and some of the scholastics. Uh, you can find that online on Verbum. And uh, if you download it, you can just access whatever verse you're interested in or pericope, an episode in the Gospel you're interested in. Now it will um, expl- uh, lead you to it. And a, a pretty good commentary on it, too. God bless you, Barry. Thanks so much for the phone call today. And tune in for the rest of the program. And if Br- Father Brian has a epiphany as to which book he read about the epiphany, <laughs> then he'll uh, he'll pass that along for us. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, for, for good. Um, uh, Therese is watching us on Facebook, and she says, Father, why is our Catholic Church losing faith? Why have we forgotten that our dear Lord Jesus is truly present and alive in the most blessed sacrament? I, Teresa, I really don't know the answer to that totally. However, I do think that the changes in some Eucharistic practices, while not evil or anything, have led to this partially. And the basic ones I find odd, because I know when they came about and why, was not kneeling for communion anymore. That We actually knelt for communion in this country in most places, not every place, but most places in 1976 or 77. And then the uh, people say the Vatican Council mandated that. No, that's not true. And the same thing is true of communion in the hand. Communion in the hand wasn't approved in this country until around the same time. Uh, Vatican II made no comments about those things. And not even the Missal made comments about those things. They became things that 
script uh, liturgists and other people sort of imposed upon people. In fact, originally, uh, and again, I'm not coming out against these as such. I don't think they're evil or anything bad about them as such, but I just think that they have occasioned the lack of um, piety concerning the Eucharist. Um, I remember when I was ordained in 1972, communion in the hand was not approved, except in a few places in the world, and certainly not in this country. And the bishop wrote us a letter in Oakland telling us if anybody tried to take communion in the hand, they should be refused communion. Now, it, it reached comic proportions in a way because I was in a convent celebrating with a priest of another religious order. I won't tell you which one, but it's the more liberal religious order. And uh, we were giving communion. So my line was all communion in the tongue. His line was all communion in the hand. And I thought, this is really interesting. But uh, it, it, it was uh, eventually approved basically because it sort of took over. And as you know, the Pope didn't allow it in Rome. I don't know if they do now, but he did not allow it in Rome for many, many years. And uh, even if they do now. So uh, th that was the, um, the, the evolution of it. Also, I do think that some of the times the music and the way the thing is celebrated have a tendency to try to reduce things to a celebration of man instead of of God. And I'll tell you why I think that, because, you know, we used to call the time, the opening of Mass, for instance, when the priest walked in the entrance town. And the reason is because the priest, who represented Christ, entered the assembly, and then through his consecration of the Eucharist, caused the communion in the assembly, the union in the assembly, but it was all from above. Now they call it the gathering song because the idea is that the community gathers and they're Christ somehow, and they basically consecrate as a whole to sort of make you Christ too, but it's not ever stated how, how clear that is. And that's why practices in this country like perpetual adoration are coming back to try to encourage people to recover again a a more reverent and understanding of the holy eucharist also we have to attribute that's the bad catechesis too many children haven't been taught eucharistic practice or theology for well it's probably been two generations at least so it's no wonder they find it difficult to understand what happens there 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. John is on Long Island in New York listening to EWTN on Sirius XM Channel 130. John, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Brian. Hi, John. Hi, Father. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question is that I was I was all ready to start a course of study to read the Bible in a year, but then it was suggested to me that that's not the best way to go about it because you can't really appreciate the scriptures. Um, and that are so I'm just wondering, in your opinion, what the the best course of study is? Because I'm confused by whether it should be chronologically or by event. Uh, what is what is your opinion? And any any resources that I could look for? 
Well, I don't know about studying the scriptures online. Um, I uh, frankly think most Catholics should begin with the catechism now. Um, I think I, I know the Vatican Council encourages us to read the Bible, and the Bible is the book of books, actually, and it is divine revelation. But it's a very hard book to understand in many ways because we don't understand the culture it comes out of, for one thing. And I think uh, one of the reasons the church discouraged reading the Bible for many centuries was because people got the wrong impressions from reading things. And it isn't just how you feel about it or your personal interpretation about it or whatever. So I like to encourage people to look for places where they can study the catechism first. Then when they digested what we teach in our religion, then it's easier to try to find a place where they can be presented with the scriptures from a Catholic perspective, which I think is really important. So that's, that's the answer I would give to you. Is that helpful, John? Yes, thank you. You're very also, welcome. Also, uh, uh, the book is The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men by Father Dwight Longnecker, which I found extremely helpful. There you go. I hope Barry's still listening. And uh, that's the answer to his question. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. You can also text your question to Father. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. That's what Molly did. And she wants to know, what resource can we use to verify or find what the church has deemed to be capital T traditions? How can we differentiate between the lowercase t traditions and the capital T traditions of the church? Well, first of all, the primary resource is the catechism, which I just recommended to the last person. It's Catechism Thursday here on Open Line. That's right. Resource Thursday. There you will find tradition with a capital T. And tradition there means parts of our doctrine that are not clear in Scripture or that need to be understood in Scripture. Remember, they had a long debate in the Council of Trent because of Protestantism about who it, which was more important, Scripture or tradition. Scripture is divine revelation is written. Tradition is divine revelation is spoken. Tradition became before Scripture because the preaching of the apostles came before they wrote it down. So then they had the debate about which was more important, and they couldn't decide. It's both and. Both are necessary. I often have people uh, ask me, well, where in the Bible does it says this, this? And I want to say, well, not everything's in the Bible explicitly, you know. That's why we have holy tradition. So tradition here would mean uh, things like, well, the identification of ordination with women. It's true Jesus didn't ordain women, but the, the statement, the absolute clarity that men, women cannot be ordained would be a matter of tradition with a capital T. How you celebrate um, some um, festival in Seville <laughs> for the flagellatus procession would be a matter of traditions with a small t. In other words, those things that fall and emphasize 
the primary doctrines of our church, or what was in the mind of the apostles, even if not explicitly stated in Scripture, would be traditions with a capital T. And how do we know the difference, or how do we know whether we have to believe in them, that that's why God gave us the magisterium, which is the servant of Scripture tradition. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Mary in Michigan, and hopefully we'll talk to you on Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. As advertised, we head to Southern Michigan. Mary is in Michigan, a first-time caller. Listening on Good Shepherd Radio, Mary, you're on with Father Brian. Oh, hi. Thank you. Um, about a year ago, I was in an online conference, and it was one of the speakers was talking about the parallel between Jesus and Solomon and how they were both anointed and, and uh, found being 1 Kings 33 and Matthew 3.15, um, where uh, Zadot the priest and Nathan the prophet um, went down with Solomon to anoint him king. And with Jesus, it was John the Baptist being both priest and prophet, and the Holy Spirit anointing him um, at the time in the River Jordan. And I'd never seen that, um, I'd never heard that um, talked about at the baptism of the, of the Lord, and I wondered, Father, if you can confirm that that's, that's really what it was, that um, both things well, line up, uh, <laughs> and that's when Jesus was anointed king. Uh, well, actually, I don't think that's true. Um, as far as Solomon, yes, that's true. But as far as Christ, Christ is anointed when he's conceived in the womb of his mother. I mean, remember, his humanity is holy. There's no human person in Jesus. So he joins his humanity to his divinity. The person, I, who exercises that humanity is the second person of the Trinity. And the word Christ and the word Messiah both mean anointed. And baptism is not for his sake. That's a modern mistake. And a lot of people are taught it in theology schools. The baptism of Christ is for the sake of everybody else. He's already anointed. It's just God recognizing his anointing. Not, not doing it, recognizing it. People even go so far today as to say Jesus wasn't a priest because he didn't go through an ordination ritual. Well, like I say, he's, he's holy by nature. He's a priest by nature. He doesn't need an anointing. He doesn't, and the baptism, again, I will repeat this over and over again because I find these alarming errors. And these are Catholics that teach these errors that the baptism is not for our Lord's sake. It's for the sake of everybody else. So he will be recognized by them, but he's, he doesn't need any of it. Uh, he does it to approve the right of John, to begin to put an end to the right of John as John practiced it, which was only for the testament of the remission of sins, and to show to people when the waters touch him, he gives them the power to heal because of their touching of his body, which will occur as far as its efficacious nature 
after he dies on the cross. But, no, I don't agree with that. The second part, the first part, yes. And uh, all the other anointing of kings have seemed to be somewhat related to the first part. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but when the English king is crowned, that's the text they use. Nathan the prophet, etc., anointed Solomon the king. Uh, there's a Handel coronation anthem uh, uh, behind that. But uh, not, not, not the second part. No, I don't think that's true. Does that clear it up for you, Mary? Well, I, only in that in the footnotes of my Bible, it says that Jesus Christ, the son of David and king of Israel, was anointed by the Holy Spirit at the time of his baptism in the Jordan, and then it says CCC 436 and 438. So that's Catechism of the Catholic Church, isn't it? 436 and 438? That would be the Catechism, but I doubt that it says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. I if we but keep listening, Mary. We're going to look that up, and we will uh, touch on that as we... Uh, yeah, well, I, all I can tell you is I don't care what it says there. Christ was already anointed, all right? <laughs> God bless you, Mary. Thanks so much for the yes. phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Uh, Frank in Knoxville, Tennessee writes in, The church teaches... The grave immorality of direct and voluntary taking of an innocent human being uh, says that. Yeah, that's a quote from I think the, from the Catechism. And he said, "Is this considered de fide doctrine of the Church?" Yes. <laughs> yes, um, it's true. It isn't uh, directly stated in Holy Scripture, but it's a constant teaching of Holy Tradition. And that's, this teaching of holy tradition goes all the way back to, um, let's see, is it the Epistle to Diognetus? It's one of the earliest patristic sources that uh, express this fact to be the case. And uh, obviously, it also corresponds to right reason because of the man's rational soul. So um, since man has a rational soul, uh, you cannot take the life of any innocent human being. Uh, it's murder. Uh, now, indirect would be, for example, if the mother is pregnant and she has interuterine cancer and they have to exercise the womb, where you're not attacking the fetus as such. But any attack also on the fetus is considered, uh, even if it's for therapeutic purposes, is considered to be murder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Mary, if you're still listening, uh, and for your benefit as well, Father, uh, says in uh, paragraph 436, Christ, the word, comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which right. means anointed. It right. became the name of the name proper to Jesus only because he accomplished perfectly the divine mission that Christ signifies. In effect, in Israel, those consecrated to God for a mission that he gave were anointed in his name. This was the case for kings, for priests, and, in rare instances, for prophets. This had to be the case all the more, so the Messiah whom God would send to inaugurate his kingdom uh, definitively. It was necessary that the Messiah be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord at once as king and priest and also as prophet. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel in his threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. And I think that that pretty much supports your answer entirely. Uh, it's just, There's no that reference came, to the that baptism came at his, in the Jordan. That came at his conception, not at his baptism. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Now, that's, there's a whole modern tradition that needs to be refuted because it's very wrong. Yeah. <clears throat> it's related to the famous idea of Jesus who was called the Christ and another one, Jesus who became the Christ. No, 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 no. Jesus was the Christ. <laughs> he didn't become the Christ. He wasn't just called Christ. His humanity itself is holy and also, therefore, priest, prophet, and king. All those three missions of the Old Testament, which involved anointings, are all included in Christ's humanity as he was conceived in the womb of his mother. And here's where some of the confession. And if you go to the, to paragraph four thirty eight, which was the other one that she that she okay. uh, quoted, and this may be where some of the confusion comes in because there's some a little bit of intricate wording here that people could definitely misconstrue. It says Jesus's messianic consecration reveals his divine mission. <clears throat> Excuse me. For the name of Christ implies he who anointed, he who was anointed, and the very anointing with which he was anointed. The one who anointed is the Father, the one who was anointed is the Son, and he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, who is the, anoint, who is the anointing. His eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life at the moment of his baptism by John. Right. So it doesn't he say he was, was anointed already. then, it says it was revealed. His right. anointing was he, revealed at that moment. Remember, as I said... That particular episode wasn't for revelation to him. It was to everybody else. And so, that, in other words, his consecration became known and was pointed to and approved by John the Baptist with everybody else. But it was, he already was anointed in, uh, by, the, by those... Because for, if he's conceived by the Father through the means of the Holy Spirit, that occurs in the womb of Mary. <laughs> so... Yes, I understand. I understand. You get, a, you, you get you get an A plus for the day, Father. I do, except that you know the people whoever wrote that commentary and put that in the in the footnote, they're the people that need to reexamine what they say. Yeah, and it's, uh, they should said, know better. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It's a little better. bit intricately worded, but it's pretty clear. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Martin writes in: Where does the justification for the doctrine of the immaculate conception come from? Oh my! Well. Uh, it basically comes from holy tradition and also from reason and logic. The problem people have with the doctrine was that Mary has to be among the redeemed. She can't be somehow separated from the redeemed. So people like Thomas Aquinas maintained that, you know, everybody believed that she was the most holy person, uh, human person that has ever existed, and she did not actually suffer from any personal sin at all, even venial sin. But in order to put her among the redeemed, many people thought she had to first be conceived in original sin, but then instantaneously cleansed. Now, Duns Scotus gave an explanation for this that was accepted by the Holy See in Pius IX's declaration that in light of her participation in all the actions of Christ, including his passion, because you know, she has the compassion of Mary, the seven dollars and things like that, God miraculously kept her from experiencing original sin, and that's her redemption. But the, the, the doctrine comes all from the idea that, she, what is it, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Um, Elizabeth pro proclaims it, that she is in grace as a human being, 
And then I always like to point out to people who don't like Marian devotion that it says in Scripture, all generations will call me blessed, for he is mine, he has done great things for me. Well, that means that Mary was sinless. <clears throat> now, the whole problem of her participation in the original sin instantaneously was a separate problem, but she never experienced a personal sin for sure. But um, as far as the original sin, the church accepted the explanation as what we believe, that God miraculously kept her from experiencing even that. So the tradition always says things like, tota pulchra s, you are all beautiful, O Mary, and original sin has not taken, been, been a part of you. And that's also a traditional Latin antiphon from a long, long standing. Very good. Next, we head to the Republic of Texas. Josh is a first-time caller listening on Guadalupe Radio Online. Josh, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Brian. Hey, Josh. Hi there. How are you guys? Okay. Uh, so, for... just a question. So, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I'm just recently moved to the U.S., to the great state of Texas, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, and I really like some perspective on your guys' thoughts in relation to the scripture about what the Christianity is going uh, to uh, other countries. For example, the UK is claims to be a Christian state, yet it allowed gay marriage, abortion, especially in like uh, Northern Ireland, where it's very, very Christian. I wondered what your guys' script, uh, opinions would be in relation to the scripture. Well, um, there used to be an old series. I assume you're British or Northern Irish, is that correct? Uh, I'm from Britain. Yeah. There was an old series on the BBC called Yes, Prime Minister. It was a comedy series, and it was made in the 80s. And in this series, the Prime Minister had to appoint a bishop in the Anglican Church. <laughs> so they're going through the list of candidates and uh, they just, one of them doesn't even believe in God. And so the prime minister says, how can we make him a bishop in the Anglican Church? And his advisor says, well, the Anglican Church is primarily a social organization, not a religious one. <laughs> and he goes all through these requirements, like uh, bishops of the kind of chaps, you know, who know how to hold their knife and fork in the right place and wonder where you wear gaiters, the kind of person you could look up to. And the, and the prime minister says, oh, really? He says, but gators are not normally worn now except in important religious events like the Royal Garden Party. And at the end of this, you know, because you your country has a wonderful sense of humor and irony, the prime minister says, what am I to do? One of the candidates wants to get God out of the church and the other wants to get the queen out. And the advisor says, well, the queen can't be taken out because this is part of the rich social fabric of this country. And then he says, God, and the advisor says, well, he's what's known as an optional extra, you know. Um, there's many, many places in Christendom, unfortunately, and I don't think it's just Protestant places. Many places in Christendom where the church has become a social institution and not a religious one, or a cultural institution and not a religious one. And in fact, many of us wonder what's going to happen when Queen Elizabeth dies um, are they going to have the, the full coronation ritual of Westminster Abbey? And if they do that, what are they going to do if they get more majority of Muslims in that state, which 
seem to be increasing constantly. I don't know. You live there. I don't. But uh, that's the impression we have. So I would say that the difficulty is just that you have people who like the veneer of Christianity, but as far as its doctrines are concerned, uh, there are a number of Catholics that are like this too. Uh, That's kind of a baggage that you can do without, in a way. It's optional baggage. Uh, The important thing is that it looks proper, not that it actually is truth. I don't know if that helps you or not, but uh, that's the way I would look at it. Um, Thank you. We appreciate Josh. Oh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, no, no. That was just say thank you for your your time. You're yeah, very you're welcome. welcome. Thanks for the phone call and welcome Thanks to the United the phone States. Call. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and the Republic of Texas, for that matter. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We still have time for your phone calls and some uh, open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Linda writes in, Father, and says, In Catholic marriage, do you have to be open to life? Is purposely avoiding pregnancy a sin? Well, the difficulty is what you mean by that. A person, as you know, does not have to have the intention to have a child in every single sexual act. On the other hand, if a person were to marry with the idea of excluding children ever, then that would be grounds for annulment. Because yes, you have to be open to life. Now, if you avoid pregnancy for a while, if you do that, the church's attitude is that you have to employ the proper methods, which would be basically, uh, um, you know, uh, natural family planning. Uh, Also, you cannot avoid pregnancy, period, because the church looks on marriage as being oriented to having children. So perhaps a couple doesn't think that in their first year or two it's important for them to have a child or they can afford a child or something like that. Well, okay, but you have to use uh, natural planning for that. And you really shouldn't prolong that too long because the family includes children. (laughs) It's not just a bunch of of, uh, people who are living basically uh, sexually but have no little I call it little trinities, you know, to participate in the whole thing. The whole purpose of the family is the, it's true, it's the unity of the parties and their love. But their love is a very special type there because it turns around the childbearing. So you have to make a promise to be open to children when you're married. Otherwise, that compromises the consent later. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We head next to Cleveland, Ohio. Ava is in Cleveland listening on The Rock. Ava, you're on with uh, Father Brian Milady. Good afternoon, Father. Good afternoon, Ava. Uh, I just wanted to ask, are you still, uh, can, can somebody still um, arrange to offer Gregorian Mass for Sod? For so that has passed away maybe five or more years ago, and what happens to the yes, man? yes, 
Uh, the, now, the Gregorian Mass is a special privilege that comes from a vision of St. Gregory the Great. And it's the idea that if you offer 30 Masses consecutively for the repose of a person's soul, that you know, they'll, they'll immediately go to heaven. And uh, it's still possible to do that. Most priests are not happy to accept Gregorian Masses because if you break it, you have to start over <laughs> and try to preserve your Mass intentions for 30 days, especially in parishes, is sometimes very, very difficult. Normally, you offer a larger stipend for them just because of the inconvenience. But, uh, of course, it's always possible to celebrate Gregorian Mass for anyone who's died. And what about, I think the second part of Ava's question, what if the person that the Masses are offered for, and this really would apply even if it was less than five years, what if they're already in heaven? Oh, well, God's grace is never wasted, you know. So to the next person, the forgotten soul, who needs this, God would apply it to them. Right. Does that help, Ava? Thank you. Sure. You're very welcome. God wants to save people. He he wants to save people. So if you're going to go to all the effort and the time and expense of getting a priest to do this, if the person you're offering it for is in heaven, he's not going to allow that to be uh, go by the board. It's because it's an uh, exercise of love. It's going to be applied to the person who needs it the most. 833-288-EWTN. 833-288-3986. That's our toll-free number. Joe is in Hawaii, and he sent us a text said, How can Catholics avoid individually interpreting the Bible ourselves? Do you suggest that each of us get a set of the sacred uh, Sacrapahina or the Anchor Bible to know the actual intent of the author? What are we supposed to do? Well, don't forget the Navarra Bible now, and there are other little commentaries. <laughs> uh, I, of course, you can interpret Scripture personally if you want. But if your interpretation clashes with the, some truth of the faith, you know it's not authentic. And you also should be trying to see not just what you think personally, how you feel about it, because today when people talk about any truth, it's all, well, I feel this, and then that's therefore the truth. But you need to look at it in the context of what it actually says. And that, of course, demands some scholarship and some research and also uh, maybe sometimes authorities if you're not too clear on those kinds of things. Also, I'm always amused when I read the Protestants who are willing to deny all these doctrines based on like the King James Version of the Bible when that's not the original language the Bible was written in. So even though it may be a beautiful translation and it may be a proper translation, still in order to really interpret scripture properly, you have to have some knowledge of the original language it was revealed in and written in. And that's of course lacking to many of us. So that's why we need to do a little research, at least, before we decide that this text must mean this or must mean that. And many texts are open to several different meanings. The worst thing is when you exclude one meaning from them that might be a meaning that the church has given to it or might affect one of our doctrines. 
Uh, Next is Maria in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Maria, just a couple minutes left with Father Brian. What's your question today? Yes, someone mentioned to me that in our earthly time here, we have three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that in heaven, we will only have one person. (laughs) That's heretical. (laughs) That's a heresy. I'm sorry, that's not Christianity. No. Uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal. You, you, uh, you see all. You see all through Christ's holy humanity. But you, and by see, I mean with your intellect, your intelligence. You, uh, it's actually the infinity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that take up your mind, capture your mind in a way. And uh, you, you can't put that into a concept as such but no the three persons are eternal i don't know who who told you that or who thought that but it's that's a really serious heresy and uh there i mean there are uh references to the trinity made during the creation story that would have predated creation right yes they're veiled now but uh for example in the beginning god said Blah, 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 blah. And it was good. St. Augustine interprets that as a veiled reference to the Trinity. So God would be the Father, said would be the Word, and it was good, which is a result of love, would be the Spirit. And all three of the persons are present in every created thing as far as causing them to exist. So, no, uh, I don't know. I, I'm shocked, frankly, that someone tell you that. Well, Mary in Kansas, Susan in Pittsburgh, give us a call back either tomorrow or next Thursday if you want to talk to Father Brian. But we are just, unfortunately, flat out of time today. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow, we'll have our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, in the house. Until we get together then, God bless.